Hello and welcome to the Jobcast. I'm Fiona Porter and joining me in the studio is Thomas and it is your first time on the show, Thomas. Absolutely, first time recording with the Jodcast. <laughs> but not your first time recording uh, audio stuff in general, though. No, no um, I do a little bit of um, uh, mic night playing uh, and do a bit of home recording as well. Very nice. Uh, so what is it you are working on at JBCA? Yep, so um, I'm a PhD student at, uh, at JBCA, uh, working under Professor Clive Dickinson and Dr. Stuart Harper on the COMAP telescope, uh, which stands for Carbon Monoxide Mapping Array Pathfinder. Um, and I'm working on producing a map of the galactic plane um, with high resolution uh, between 26 and 34 gigahertz. I have to admit, I am not an expert in that field, so that sounds pretty fancy to me. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you're aiming for, isn't it? For someone in a slightly different field to go, ooh, that sounds intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that's one way of putting it. <laughs> well, in the show this time, Fiona Porter interviews Tysa Danilovich about the chemistry of asymptotic giant branch stars, and Haritina Mogasanu and Samuel Leske take a look at what's happening in the November night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Michael Wright with this month's news. In the news this month... Water on the Moon, and getting in touch with Voyager. Firstly, a new paper called Molecular Water Detected on the Sunlit Moon by Sophia has been published. As the name suggests, it claims the discovery of water on the sunlit part of the Moon. We've already found water ice near the Moon's poles, and some water in the layer of gases surrounding the Moon, but this is a paper that focuses on water in the sunlit parts of the Moon. So, Sophia, the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, it's a modified plane, which is fitted with a reflecting telescope to study the infrared. Of course, a whole load of cameras and other bits on the back end of that. As it's in the stratosphere, this reduces the problem of the Earth's atmosphere, which is a big trouble if you're making infrared observations. It was observing one of the Moon's craters, called Clavius Crater, and looking for a particular signature which indicates water, a peak in emissions at a wavelength of around 6 micrometers. What the researchers did is made graphs of the emissions where they were looking and plotted emission against wavelength for a few micrometers around where that peak was expected, so around 6 micrometers. The authors compare the peaks found in the spectra to things they researched for various materials known to be water-bearing and finding reasonable agreement and pointing out that they know of no other material which is both reasonable to find on the moon and has this single spectral feature. The discovery is interesting in terms of problems of working out how come that water is there. In the NASA press release for the paper, lead author Casey Honorable is quoted. She says, Without a thick atmosphere, water on the sunlit lunar surface should be lost to space, yet somehow we're seeing it. Something is generating the water, and something must be trapping it there. That quote sums up the next problems to be solved. How come that water is there? But also interesting, the idea this water needs some way to build up on the moon to a level where we can make these detections. Hopefully the next few years will give us some better answers to those problems. Also in the news, getting back in touch with Voyager 2. A set of test commands were beamed to Voyager 2 at the end of October, and they appeared to come back as working with no known issues. You see, what happens is this. To communicate with a craft, NASA uses the Deep Space Station 43 radio antenna in Australia. However, in March, the telescope was stopped for repairs. The argument was made that the equipment is ageing, there's a possibility for unplanned outages of power, which is going to rise and rise and rise, and the equipment needs to be upgraded, made more reliable. Voyager could still submit data back to the Earth. There's other dishes there to receive that data. However, the craft had to be put into a state which was expected to keep it good till the next set of instructions were in, because this is the only antenna in the southern hemisphere which can send the instructions, and because of where Voyager is in the sky, it needs to be looked at from the southern hemisphere to do this. There wasn't an expectation that anything would go wrong, but the fact it worked is good news. As for what the upgrades were, these include installing a couple of new radio transmitters, including one to communicate with Voyager 2, but this is also there to set NASA up for its sort of next generation of missions as well. 
The other thing, of course, is this needs a whole load of upgrades to make those work. So there's been work done on the cooling equipment, work done on upgrading the electronics, work done on the power supply for these transmitters, all that sort of stuff. But as I say, we've got back in touch with Voyager now with a set of test commands and things seem to be going well. One last short piece of news is to mention a happy birthday to the International Space Station. A sort of happy birthday. It celebrated 20 years of continuous human occupation on the 2nd of November this year. So congratulations, and on that happy note, back to the studio. Thanks for that, Mike. Now Fiona Porter interviews Thaisa Danilovich about the chemistry of asymptotic giant branch stars. Hello, this is Fiona Porter. And joining us in the studio today is Taisa Danilovic from the University of Astronomy KU Leuven in Belgium. Hello. Hi, Fiona. Great to be here. So you're actually here visiting our ALMA office right now. That's right. I've been working on reducing some complicated ALMA observations. Oh, always <laughs> fun. So to get us started, could you tell us a bit about what you're researching at the moment? So I work on something called AGB stars. This stands for asymptotic giant branch, which is a slightly meaningless term. Um, <laughs> this is a phase of evolution that most of the stars in our galaxy will go through. So you might have heard of supernovas, but those only happen to the most massive stars. So a star needs to start off being at least 10 times as heavy as the sun, so 10 solar masses, to end up in a supernova. Well, the other stars pass through what we call the AGB phase. So when they run out of fuel in their core, where they start off fusing hydrogen to helium, and they run out of hydrogen, they start to expand. The core ends up being mostly carbon and oxygen, depending a bit on the star, and only a little bit of helium left around the core and a little bit of hydrogen around that continue um, with a nuclear fusion. And because these are thin shells, they're very unstable, and it causes the star to pulsate. So it's not a dramatic explosion. It's a pulsating star which ejects its outer layers because of the pulsation. So these outer layers, this, this matter, this gas from the star, cools down as it moves away from the star and it turns into molecules and dust. And it's the molecules I look at. So if you're looking at, for example, a much hotter star, then you're not going to be seeing much in the way of molecules. It's just a bit too hot for that to be... Possible. Yeah, exactly. So really hot stars don't have as many molecules, but these stars which are dying, uh, they're also a lot cooler because they've expanded. And when you sort of expand, you cool down. What sort of things can you learn from seeing these different molecules? So all sorts of things. Um, one of the most important things we want to understand about these stars is how quickly they're ejecting matter. So if they eject it more quickly, they stay on this AGB phase for less time because they've run out of stuff to eject. Because uh, these stars, once they've ejected everything, what you're left with is the core of the star, so as opposed to the outer layers, the core, and that's actually what a white dwarf is. It's, it's the core of one of these stars, and it will be surrounded by what we call a planetary nebula. Not because it has anything to do with planets, it's actually because Herschel thought they kind of looked like Uranus, um, <laughs> and in astronomy, we have a lot of terms which turn out to have absolutely nothing to do with what an object actually is. Exactly, exactly. But the planetary nebulae are very pretty, and if you don't have a very good telescope, they are kind of different colours like the planets. So you can sort of see where the idea came from, but in reality, they're not actually planets at all. No. So, going back to the HGB stars... We want to know how quickly all the, the molecules and dust are ejected so we know how long the AGB phase lasts. But that also tells us how much dust ends up being ejected because if the star is in the AGB phase a bit longer, there's more time for heavier elements to uh, be brought to the surface and then ejected. Whereas if it all happens more quickly, there's not as much time for that to happen um, and we have fewer what we call metals in astronomy, which is everything heavier than hydrogen and helium. <laughs> um, but that's important because all that stuff being ejected is where future planets, future stars come from. So, well, the composition of all of that stuff is important. Also for understanding where our planet came from in the mm. past. So our listeners may be aware that uh, all the matter that's used to make up planets had to be made in stars first. 
So I suppose this is also quite interesting for people who are looking at current planet formation to see what the composition of the dust tends to look like so you can get a better idea of what the planets being made might be like. Yeah, exactly. So about half the dust in the universe comes from AGB stars and about half from supernovas. So it depends on where in the universe or the galaxy you're looking at what type of dust you're looking. But AGB stars are important dust factories for the galaxy. Are there any locations that AGB stars are more common then? Or are they just sort of evenly dispersed? Well, they're not found in sort of uh, clusters of very massive stars, because they have to be massive. <laughs> but they are spread out through the galaxy, and the best studied ones are those that are relatively close, just because we can see them more easily. What happens if they're a bit too far away? Well, depends. So sometimes maybe we can still see them. Usually we can, we can see them in at least the optical or the infrared. But how much information we can get out of that varies. So I actually mostly look at stars in the radio, in the millimetre, submillimetre range. And with that, what I'm looking at is molecules rotating. So when molecules rotate faster or slower, they emit radio waves. And by studying those, we can work out how much the star is expanding and what molecules are there as well. So this is all interesting information, but if the star is too far away, we won't be able to see like these molecular signatures. Right. So we can see them in our galaxy, we can see them in the large and small Magellanic clouds, but further than that, for now, it's difficult. I take it for some of them at least, uh, given that it's quite a dusty area, if they're going to be producing dust, then the issue is going to be that certain wavelengths are just blocked or there's extinction issues. Yeah, absolutely. So these stars are quite bright in the infrared, but not as bright in the optical, generally speaking. Uh, in fact, the closest AGB star to Earth is called Algoradus, which is in the southern hemisphere, and it's the brightest infrared source in the sky, but oh. it's not very bright in the optical. I <laughs> <laughs> haven't heard of it before. Yeah, unfortunately, unless you've got heat vision, that one's not going to be much for your back garden <laughs> observer. So how is ALMA involved in, in this process? How is ALMA involved in picking up... I'm assuming it's going to be something to do with the spectral lines. Yes. So ALMA is very useful because, well, before ALMA, we would use a single radio dish uh, to observe spectral lines. So the spectral line is something where with frequency you get more or less emission, so that those spinning molecules I mentioned before, the photons they emit come at very specific frequencies. So we can observe those by using a normal single dish telescope as we say when we're comparing telescopes to ALMA. But the, the downside there is, while we can have very good spectral resolution, what we don't have is any spatial resolution. So you can tell, for example, that, oh, this particular molecule exists somewhere in this area, but you can't really narrow it down at all. Yeah. We're pointing the telescope at the star. We're pretty sure it's coming from the star, but what sort of shape, how it is around the star, we can't see. But with ALMA, when we get lots of telescopes working together, as well as just being more sensitive, which is always useful, we can spatially resolve what we see. So we can see where the emission comes from on the sky. Essentially, we can zoom in really well. What sort of structure are you seeing? Uh, do molecules tend to be centred around the stars themselves? Or is there other areas where like particular ones tend to congregate? Yeah, so... That really depends on the molecule. So carbon monoxide is very common in space. You don't so much want it in your home. <laughs> Definitely but, not. Uh, but there's a lot of it around these stars um, because just just a lot of carbon and oxygen being formed around, uh, like inside the star. So when they come out, there's a lot of them. And the carbon monoxide will usually be spread out quite far from the star. So by quite far, I mean it will be located from the star something like thousands of AU from the star. Also, these stars, I said, expand. So mm -hmm. actually, one star will expand to be about an AU in radius. So when our sun <laughs> expands, it will swallow up the Earth, or always swallow mm. up the Earth. Well, I mean, at that point, it's not really going to be something we're worrying about, I imagine. No, it's also about five billion years in the future. So mm -hmm. Yeah, so panic. don't panic, don't panic. <laughs> so, yeah, and carbon monoxide is one of the things we can use to trace how the star is ejecting all this stuff, because there's so much of it. Uh, it's quite bright. It's not too hard to see with our telescopes. 
So it, it's a good way of seeing what shapes the star is making in general. But then there are other molecules, some of which we can only see when they're very close to the star, mostly because they get destroyed very quickly. So that's the other great thing about carbon monoxide. It's a very strongly bonded molecule. And I guess there must be others which are just a bit more precarious, and uh, it's a pretty extreme environment. Yes. Just in general. I mean, so close to the star, we need sturdy molecules that can exist in quite hot environments. But then when we get further away from the star, we can get all sorts of strange things. So we can have, for example, carbon chains that are actually so hard to make on Earth that they're very hard to study to compare to what we see in space because there's just too much air on Earth. (laughs) We're not very stable in air. One of those cases where we could make this but it's probably going to involve our lab burning down, so maybe let's not. Something like that, or at least it will take a lot of energy to keep it in the nice vacuum. But some of those molecules, when you start to get carbon atoms chaining together, those have to form further away from the star because they need to be in a colder environment. Because, look, they're still not stable in space. <laughs> that's just... Maybe I'm making it sound like there's a lot of stuff around these stars, and, like, there is, but stars are quite big, and then... This stuff is in quite a large area or a large volume. So the density of the matter ejected from the star, which we can call a stellar wind as well, Mm -hmm. it seems very bright, but it's actually less dense than air at sea level. Yeah, but if you're comparing it to, say, sort of like your pure vacuum then, and I suppose even just other areas of the interstellar medium, although obviously it's going to vary a bit depending on exactly where you are. But if you're right up to a star with a stellar wind, then obviously it's going to be a bit more crowded relatively. It's denser and it's in general warmer, although at the outer edges it can get quite cold where it meets the sort of other interstellar medium that's been sitting there for longer. If I remember rightly, you have a particular interest in things going on with sulfur compounds. Uh, yes, that's true. So some of the molecules that I've been looking at recently over the past few years have been what I call sulfur-bearing molecules. So uh, sulfur monoxide, sulfur dioxide, more things you don't want to encounter in real life, <laughs> um, which are found around oxygen-rich stars, so you've got the, the oxygen there reacting with the sulfur. And basically the sort of interesting thing I discovered is that the way in which these sulfur molecules are distributed around some of these oxygen-rich AGB stars, I should say we have oxygen-rich and carbon-rich are the sort of two main categories. Because uh, when stars have stopped burning their hydrogen and helium, they go through periods of burning other things for a while, and two of those are going to be your carbon and your oxygen, for people who are a bit less up to scratch on their stellar chemistry. Exactly, and also the age and the mass of the star affects whether it's oxygen or carbon-rich. But So what I discovered is that among oxygen-rich stars, the sulfur-bearing molecules, SO and SO2, sorry, sulfur monoxide and sulfur dioxide, (laughs) are found in different regions around the star depending on other properties of the star, which we weren't really expecting. So for the stars that are ejecting matter slower, these molecules are found close to the star, sort of like they're formed close to the star, which is a common thing we see with many molecules in general. But for stars which are ejecting matter faster... There's a bit of these molecules close to the star, but the peak in abundance of these molecules is further out. Huh. Yeah, it turns out to be different ways in which they can be formed. So looking at just sulfur monoxide as the main example, and then sulfur dioxide is formed from sulfur monoxide. So yeah. It actually forms from this molecule that's SH, just a sulfur and hydrogen together, which is not actually very common on Earth, but... This molecule reacting with just oxygen atoms can give us sulfur monoxide. However, this reaction can only happen in very hot regions, so it can only happen close to the star. Right. Whereas for the other types of stars, the ones that are ejecting matter more quickly, we have a little bit of that happening close to the star. (laughs) But for some reason, and we don't actually know the reason yet, it doesn't happen as much, um, and some other molecules fall instead. This, this is still something that we're working on. <laughs> but instead we have a reaction of hydroxide, which is what we get when water is photodissociated by the interstellar radiation field when it gets far enough away from the star. 
So once water, which also forms very easily, gets far enough away from the star, gets photodissociated by light from just mm-hmm. other miscellaneous stars, and then we have hydroxide floating around, and that hydroxide can react with sulfur to make sulfur monoxide. So we have this difference, we can see this difference, and we can explain it the way I just did with different chemical reactions, but we don't know why exactly they should behave so differently. So, you know, some of my colleagues are still working on that, (laughs) some of the more chemistry-minded ones. It's an interesting thing to find out. I suppose you get these things sometimes, don't you, in astronomy, where you see something and your immediate thought is, huh, that's odd. Yeah. Why is it doing that? (laughs) And that's how we keep finding new things to research, is just someone going, that's odd. Yes. Well, on the (laughs) other hand, I just mentioned water close to these stars, which Mm -hmm. maybe sounds odd to some of our listeners. There's actually a lot of water out in space. Oxygen is very common, and hydrogen hydrogen is extremely common. (laughs) Most common thing in the universe. And uh, water is the most stable thing you can make by throwing those two things together. So basically there's water everywhere except on Mars. That said, it's obviously not going to be in the splashy form. (laughs) No, no, it is still floating in space, so it's in gas form. But it's formed more or less on the surface of the star, or very close to the surface of the star, and then pushed out along with everything else, and eventually turns into ice. And that's maybe at least partly where some of the ice, uh, well, some of the water and ice in our solar system on Earth came from. Because you do see things like that quite commonly on things like comets and asteroids, as long as they're far enough away from whatever star they are orbiting around. Yeah, exactly. It's very easy to make water. The main issue with it is always going to be getting into a place where it's able to be liquid. Yes. Well, when it's on a planet the right distance from a star, I mean, that's a a separate problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not so much a concern for your field. No, not yet. So that is your own field of research, of course, but you are doing something else with ALMA at the moment, is that right? Yes. So actually I'm here working on some observations for the Atomium project, which is an ALMA large program. Large program just means we used it for many hours. I think over 100 is the criteria. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing with the Atomium project is looking at several different AGB stars that have different properties so that we can compare them or compare how they differ or are the same. And we're looking at the kinds of molecules that turn into dust to try and work out exactly how, or as exactly as we can, work out how dust is formed. Or what molecules don't form dust because we can still see them being molecules. That's the other side of it. So for this project, we have very high-resolution ALMA observations, but then we also have lower spatial-resolution ALMA observations because we want to be able to see things on small scales and large scales. So you both want to be able to actually localise particular molecules to particular areas, but also just sort of say, in this vicinity there is X, Y, and Z. Yes. And so we looked at the same frequencies using actually three different configurations of ALMA. So that's the telescopes in three different locations or sets of locations, initially. And when they're further apart, we get higher spatial resolution observations. And when they're close together, we get lower spatial resolution observations. But we're able to see bigger things. The fun slash weird thing about an interferometer like ALMA is that if you set it to the standard configuration where you have lots of high spatial resolution uh, things that you can see, you actually resolve out some of the things. And this is a weird quirk where the telescope, the set of telescopes, acts as a spatial filter, and we can only see small things and not big things. So this is why it can be quite important for interferometers to have lots of different telescopes involved, so you can both manage to be able to see uh, your really fine detail on the small things, but you can also still see the bigger things exist. Yes. We don't want to not see the forest for all the trees, basically. (laughs) But what I'm here working on this week is combining our high and low resolution data together into one cube so that we can sort of see everything at once instead of looking at it separately. It also just uh, increases the quality of the data because we're sort of adding together several observations. But it's a bit complicated. <laughs> I'm happy to do it. I can imagine. What's the data you're working with actually look like? Um, what is it? Is it uh, more spectral light? 
then? Well, it is more spectral lines, but then because we can see where they are, several of our stars, for example, have like spirals in them. Um, and we think that's because there's some sort of companion. Well, in some cases we know that there's a companion, but in some cases we didn't already know that there was a companion. Um, and when I say companion, I mean another star or perhaps a large planet, which is making patterns in the gas that's coming off the star. So we have some spirals, we have some other weird shapes I'm not sure how to describe, but at least everyone can picture a spiral. That sounds like it must be quite interesting to see. I suppose it makes sense as a method to sort of identify companions, but it's a bit uh, limited in terms of... I suppose it's only really going to work for the AGPs, isn't it? Well, yes. And it was unexpected the first time we saw like a, a really bright spiral as well. Not in our project. This is a few years ago now. Yeah, generally you don't expect to see stars <laughs> making spirals in... An... No, that's what spiral galaxies are. it's a star which has just got really big aspirations (laughs) so what is it you're hoping to end up doing with the data do you know or is it a big question well so on the one hand there's the the big question that we want to answer about dust but we also want to i mean some of what i've been looking at uh, molecules that we haven't seen much at all before because they're so faint there's not much of the molecule out there so it's just hard to see with worse telescopes, basically. <laughs> so I'm particularly interested in working out what those molecules are, how much of them there is around each star, and some contribution as to why, which is the harder question to answer. Well, because here on the Jodcast, we don't believe in letting hard questions go to rest. Is there any logic that you've find so far um, as to where the different molecules appear. I know you mentioned earlier that obviously some of them can only form in particularly hot or particularly cool areas. So far, from the point of view of close to the star or not close to the star, what we're seeing mostly makes sense. There's a few strange ones that need to be looked at in more detail, but I should also say we haven't finished the analysis, so I'm not going to say <laughs> anything firm. But on the other hand, what we're seeing is, you know, some molecules found in these stars and not these stars. That's a little bit more confusing. So there's some molecules which will show up in one star and then just won't in another star, which is otherwise fairly similar. Yeah, there seem to be some pattern with sort of other properties of the star. So we can maybe make some generalizations or like predictions for other stars that are similar, but we still need to work out why. Well, that's what research is for, I suppose. Got to be something to keep looking for. Well, it's been lovely to have you here. It's been lovely being on here. Thanks very much. And cheers for now. Bye. Thank you for that. Past me. Now that we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So, I'll kick us off this time with what's unfortunately a bit of sad news for the world of radio astronomy, which uh, which is my field. Uh, which is that the Arecibo radio telescope is going to be decommissioned. So what's happened to Arecibo is that there's been some pretty severe damage to its support cables and there's now a risk of the entire telescope going down. So unfortunately, we're going to have to say goodbye to it. So we actually covered this in the September news uh, on the Jodcast when the first set of cables snapped in August this year, uh, which tore about a 30 metre or 100 feet gash in the telescope's surface, which obviously knocked it right out of operation. And then, uh, more recently, on the 6th of November, another cable broke. So it's been concluded for that that the remaining cables are probably not as stable as we previously thought. And... uh, While there had previously been some talk about investigating it and seeing if it would be possible to repair the telescope, with this news it's looking like there would be an actual risk to life for workers attempting to fix it, given we'd have got no idea exactly how stable the remaining support is. So rather than repair it, the plan is to decommission and deconstruct it so it can't pose any more danger. Oh my goodness! What what a shame! It's it's such a um, an influential telescope as well, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. So Arecibo at this point had recently passed fifty seven years of operation 
or it would have if it were still up and running following August, but it had first light on the 1st of November 1963. So it's been operational right up until August this past year, nearly 57 years. And for, a, for around 50 of those, it was the largest single aperture telescope on the planet. 305 metres across. It's only recently been overtaken by FAST, which is uh, 500 metres across, so that's a quite impressive upgrade on what was already a very impressive telescope. And I think the main thing people will know Arecibo for, while it's been involved in a lot of very interesting radio projects, the main thing I imagine most people will know it for is the Arecibo message, uh, which was a famous radio message uh, for a messaging extraterrestrial intelligence program. You can look it up and see what exactly they beamed out there. It's fantastic. It's a very interesting message as well. It still remains to be one of the uh, strongest, if not the strongest, uh, radio message ever sent by humans out into space. Because the majority of radio emission that comes from us is just leakage. It's We are releasing radio just on things like you know, commercial radio stations, and some of that radiation escapes the planet and wanders off into space, but uh, the Arecibo message was deliberately beamed out there. So it, rather than just being a weak little offshoot, it got the full power out there into space. And that was sent uh, in 1974, so that's, I believe, if my maths is right, 46 years ago which means in that time it has travelled a grand total of 46 light years. And uh, unfortunately, still no response. But then again, space is a very, very big place. So the sheer distances, even between um, the Earth and our uh, nearest star, the Sun, it still takes like eight minutes to get there uh, and eight minutes to get back, um, if we mm -hmm. were sending uh, light both ways. So it's still quite a distance. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about the nearest star, we are already talking, I believe, something within the of two light years. So I think by this point, we firmly expect that if there are any messages received from aliens, not that I'm saying there will be, because uh, one of our mottos on the Jodcast is, it's never aliens. If we did get any messages, we would expect them to come from quite far afield. And if the message arrived on a planet, say, 46 light years away, and they immediately sent a message back. We wouldn't expect to get it for another 46 light years, because that's just how fast you can get it to go. Well, so keep an, uh, keep an eye out in the next 46 years. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll, uh, we'll get a message back. Although, speaking of SETI, I went and had a little look to see if there were any other telescopes that were known to have had a very dramatic failure. And there's one which has had an even more dramatic failure than this. So this is one of the telescopes at the Green Bank Observatory, which is Another fairly well-known name in both radio astronomy and in SETI, although it's not known for messaging for once, it's just known for SETI, for searching. But this particular telescope wasn't actually used for SETI, but uh, we're going to blame aliens anyway, because uh, more or less overnight, a 95-metre radio telescope collapsed completely. And the, the pictures for this are spectacular. I mean, genuinely, it looks more like an arts sculpture than a telescope. It's just a big twisted pile of metal. Uh, that story did end up having a happy ending though. That particular telescope, the one which was originally there, was a 95 metre radio telescope and it got replaced by a 100 metre radio telescope so it got a shiny new upgrade. So we are uh, expecting an upgrade when uh, Arecibo gets disassembled or is that potentially it for that site? At the moment it seems like that's probably it for the site. Uh, while it would be wonderful to get another uh, telescope up and running, construction for telescopes that big is no mean feat. Especially for ones of that size, rather than being like, say, the level that we, are, that we all know and love, uh, these aren't big dishes that can move around. These are set permanently into the ground, usually in uh, in craters left by things like meteor impacts. Uh, so obviously, while the site would still be viable for that, there's the matter of funding. And given that we already have, you know, an even larger radio telescope uh, based over in China, 
I don't know if we can expect to see funding to get it rebuilt. Although there are actually petitions uh, to see if it can be saved still. But I think that's very much going to be uh, going to have to be considered along with the risks. At the moment, it's sounding like the risks might be a bit too high. But, you know, still, we can be hopeful that the area will will get some new life in some sort of astronomical capacity. Hopefully. Uh, we'll make sure to keep us updated. Hmm? And what do you have for us this month? Um, so for this month, um, I had a little look at um, some recent papers to come out, um, and there's some interesting news from Apogee. Um, so from the Apogee instrument, um, they reckon that they've found the remains of another galaxy structure within the Milky Way. Um, so they were out with Apogee and um, checking what we call the metallicity of stars. Um, if you don't know, the metallicity is uh, a number which gives um, an idea of how much of a star is made of metals. Although, I should note, these are astronomical metals. And for astronomers, if it's not hydrogen or helium, it's a metal. Okay, thank you very much. So in that case, um, it simply represents how much of the star is not hydrogen and not helium. Um, so they were looking at these numbers and they found that a big group of stars... Uh, near the centre of our galaxy, doesn't seem to fit in with the others. Um, and then looking at the way that they're moving, again, they don't seem to fit in with the pattern. So the thought is that when the Milky Way was forming, that it collided or accreted, so effectively swallowed another galaxy. And that's what we're seeing the remains of here, which I think is quite an interesting, uh, quite an interesting observation, really. So what it's sounding like is just basically a, a, a fossilised remnant of another galaxy in ours. Exactly, exactly. It's it's a beautifully simple conclusion. And it's quite satisfying when you read the report through and you um, have a look at the uh, the way that they've found it out. It's some quite interesting, quite complicated science, but the conclusion itself is just sort of beautifully sweet and succinct. I think it's always very satisfying when you come to an astronomical conclusion, which is just very easy to picture and very easy to understand. Because I feel a lot of astronomical processes can be a bit oblique and maths heavy, and this happens because magnetic fields, probably? We don't know. Nobody really understands magnetic fields. Absolutely. Uh, but this one, you can just picture it nice and easy, can't you? Yeah. Just, here are some ancient stars, here's our fledgling Milky Way. And uh, whoops, they've gotten swallowed. Exactly. And then on top of that, even better, it comes with um, quite a uh, quite a nice um, acronym, the uh, Apogee uh, experiment. It's uh, it's one of those fantastic examples of where um, of where astronomers have really gone to town with uh, with naming things. It's quite a nice uh, quite a nice name. So, what's Apogee stand for? Apogee stands for A P O. Galactic Evolution Experiment. So there's an, an acronym within another an acronym. Oh, dear me. It's, uh, it's embedded. For those who, weren't, who aren't in the know, uh, apogee is an astronomical term, which means at furthest distance from Earth. So, for example, when the moon is as far away as it ever gets, it's at apogee. And uh, when it's at closest distance, it's at perigee. Meanwhile... Uh, there's actually equivalent words for well, a number of different objects. So at closest and furthest distance to a star, uh, peri and apoastron. And my personal favourite is when something's at furthest distance from the centre of the galaxy, apogalacticon. Which sounds kind of like a transformer to me. <laughs> it does really. And, and speaking of naming, there's there's an even better one in this paper, uh -huh. at least I think. So um, I mentioned the um, that skeleton galaxy that uh, they found in the centre of the Milky Way. Well, as it turns out, that has a mass of roughly half a billion solar masses, so half a million times the mass of the Sun, um, which is approximately twice the mass um, of another system that's been recently discovered. Mm -hmm. So the Gaia Enceladus Sausage System. That's beautiful. <laughs> oh, once it in is a, while, a fantastic name. Once in a while I hear something like that and I think, what I said before about astronomers, how they shouldn't be allowed to name anything, I've changed my mind. Astronomers are now in charge of naming 
everything. <laughs> I'm trying now to think if I've come across any particularly spectacular ones myself. Because we do love our silly acronyms in astronomy. Absolutely. You know, what's what's possibly the most memorable one you've come across? Mm. Well, I do remember quite a few from some of the telescopes in Australia. They've got a lot of ones themed to Australian wildlife. You know, you've got dingo and emu and that sort of thing. But I think my personal favourite is one from... When I was quite early in my PhD and I was doing some background reading, I came across the T-Rex survey. So that's T-R-E-C-S. Now, I can't think what on earth that could stand for. Can you shed a little bit of light on that? Uh, I can indeed. Although it turns out there's actually two separate astronomical things which use this acronym. The one which I came across was the Tiered Radio Extragalactic Continuum Survey. But as well as that, there is the Thermal Region Camera Spectrograph. So apparently uh, in astronomy, we've got a lot of people who love a good paleontology joke. <laughs> Although I'm still always on the lookout for even sillier ones. I think there's an even better one, I think, in South Africa. There's one called Meerkat, which is um, one of the precursors to the Square Kilometre Array. Um, now, for a name, absolutely brilliant, again. <laughs> uh, is, we, they've got a lot of co-workers working on Meerkats, and uh, I imagine you won't have seen this while you were uh, here for an interview. But we do actually, we have an office which is full of people who work on Meerkat. So of course it is the Meerkat office. There is also a poster inside that office of a bunch of Meerkats, each of them labelled with the name of someone who works in that office. Fantastic. So we have an office filled with Meerkat Meerkats, mm -hmm. uh, named after the Meerkat people. Exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, unfortunately... Ian Morrison couldn't record the night sky for us for the Northern Hemisphere this month, but he will be back next month. In the meanwhile, you can find his notes, as always, at www.jb.man.ac.uk forward slash astronomy forward slash night sky. And for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haritina Mogasanu and Samuel Leske with the night sky where you are. Kia ora from New Zealand. I am Haritina Mogoshanu, Senior Science Communicator at Space Place in Wellington. The evening sky of November holds the Maori asterism of Te Waka o Tamarereti, which depicts one of my favourite cultural interpretations of how the stars ended up in the night sky. Here in New Zealand, this time of the year, after sunset, we see the Milky Way surrounding the horizon. When it's like that, the galaxy here looks like a river. Move away from the light-polluted cities and you should be able to clearly see it wrapping around the horizon. This is how dark the sky is in New Zealand throughout the entire country. In November 2020, Jupiter and Mars are the brightest objects we can see first after sunset. Jupiter is in the western sky and Mars is in the north. As the sky darkens, Saturn appears just above Jupiter. Unseen to the naked eye, very close to Jupiter is Pluto. By mid-month, Te Waka o Tamarereti is clearly visible in the sky. Starting from the west, Antares, the red giant heart of Scorpius, is setting and the asterism of the fishhook of Maui is now the prow of the Waka. To the south, the two stars pointing to the Southern Cross, Alpha Centauri and Beta Centauri, are now the rope of the Waka. The Southern Cross is the anchor. Interesting to see... Due to precession, about 2,000 years ago, the Southern Cross, as seen from New Zealand, would have completely disappeared beyond the horizon, just like an anchor. That was the time when Canopus, the second brightest star in the sky, was visible from Greece. Canopus is a circumpolar star, 
which means it is always in the sky here. For Maori, he is Atutahi, the chief of all stars. Two other stars that were visible from Europe 2000 years ago are Alpha and Beta Centauri. They are part of the constellation of Centaurus. Next in line is the Southern Cross pointing down at this time of the year, indicating south just like an arrow. Southern Cross is also circumpolar from New Zealand. The Southern Cross points at Akenar, also a circumpolar star here, which is now very high in the sky. Each side of this imaginary line that goes from the Southern Cross to Akenar at about two-thirds from the Southern Cross and one-third from Akenar are the two Magellanic Clouds. The large Magellanic Cloud is on the eastern side of the imaginary line and the small Magellanic Cloud on the western side of it. The small Magellanic Cloud is 200,000 light-years away from us. A fuzzy patch very close to the small Magellanic Cloud is the beautiful 47 Tucane globular cluster. The cluster is, however, much closer to us at only 16,000 light-years away. The large Magellanic Cloud is a symphony of stars at about 160,000 light-years away. A dwarf irregular galaxy, the large Magellanic Cloud is visually located on the border between the constellations Dorado and Mensa and is one of the very few galaxies that are visible to the naked eye. It really looks like a cloud. The Tarantula Nebula in the Large Magellanic Cloud is a beautiful object in a good telescope. Close to the horizon in the asterism of the Waka Otamarereti is Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, which rises a little south of due east after sunset. By the end of the month, it will be up at sunset. Jupiter and Saturn are now visually very close, enough to be in the same binocular view. Every 20 years, Jupiter catches up on Saturn, but of course, this is an illusion as they are on the same line of sight, but at different distances from Earth. Left of Sirius is the constellation of Orion, which here in New Zealand is the asterism of Te Taurapa, or the end of the Waka. In New Zealand, Orion's belt also makes the beautiful and practical asterism of the pot. Also in Orion, Rigel, a blue supergiant star, is directly above the line of three stars. Betelgeuse, a red giant star, is straight below. To the left, Orange Aldebaran and the Hyades cluster, along with the Pleiades, which are further left, make the feathers of the canoe and the ripples in the water. From at this time of the year, from here from New Zealand, we can see in the sky, in the same time, the brightest star in the sky, Sirius, the second brightest star in the sky, Canopus, and the third brightest star, which is Alpha Centauri. Very low in the north, we observe through our 16-inch telescope the Andromeda galaxy, but you do need a clear sky north and a low horizon to be able to see it. It was truly a spindle of light. Andromeda is the furthest object we can see with the naked eye as a fuzzy patch, and we can just make it up from here. Close to Zenith is Akenar from Eridanus, all the beautiful stars of Grus that are doubles, and Fomalhaut, one of my favorite stars and also one of the royal stars. In Grus, the Grus Quartet is now visible. In Sculptor, the famous Sculptor galaxy is in a good position to observe. This galaxy has a visual magnitude of about 7 and it is visible with the naked eye. It looks just like a blurred star. Sculptor Galaxy is about 12 million light years away from us. In the morning sky, Venus rises a little south of east an hour before the sun all month. 
Mercury might be seen in the dawn mid-month below and right of Venus and much fainter rising 35 minutes before the Sun. From here, from New Zealand, Haritina Mogoshanum, Senior Science Communicator at Space Place at Carter Observatory, wishes you clear skies so you can always see the stars and always remember that we are made from the same stardust as they are. Thanks for that, Haritina and Sam. And now on to the feedback. We've had a couple of people comment to us uh, in recent episodes that we've been having a bit of difficulty with the audio consistency between different sections. Uh, so first up, I'd like to apologise for that. It's uh, an unfortunate side effect of the fact that rather than using uh, a consistent set of mics all hooked up to the same soundboard, we can keep all the levels nice and easy. Uh, everyone is now using just whatever mics they have around. So unfortunately, it's making a little bit more work on our editors and these things do sometimes slip by. But uh, we're making a special note to just keep a good eye on that and try and make things as smooth and as listenable as possible for everyone. And I'd like, just like to thank you for your patience during all of this. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast on flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast and you unfortunately still cannot send us post or rather you can but we won't receive it because we still are not allowed in our studio or indeed our building while we'd appreciate the thought very very much uh, we're going to have to ask you to hold off until we can actually collect it safe and sound Thanks to Thaisa Danilovich for the interview. The editors were Tian Bezaidenhout, Lizzie Lee, Hongming Tang, and Michael Wright. The producer was Fiona Porter. Until next time, jaw on! <laughs> <laughs>